You're listening to the Metro LA Podcast, an official podcast of the LA International Church of Christ. Good morning, everybody. It's great to be together here studying the Bible. And I'm Robert Carrillo, and I'm here at Metro Vision Studios. And we're on uh, Justice number three. And it's our final one. And I got to tell you, I'm, I'm kind of sad that we're wrapping up here because I'm just really getting into this. I'm learning so much. Um, it, I, I probably could do another three three uh, three studies, um, but I won't. I, I want to go ahead and wrap it up. I don't want to drag this out too long. But obviously, this has been a huge need right now uh, with everything going on in the world. And a lot of Christians are, uh, well, really a lot of people all over the world are waking up to some of the social injustices that are out there, particularly in regard to races and particularly in regard to the African-American community. And people are marching across the country and around the world and really putting into practice social justice. And um, so I think it's very important that we understand and we have a good biblical sound doctrine about it and, and how we practice social justice justice as Christians. And so this is going to be a little bit of a summary. And we got some new stuff that I think is pretty cool and helpful and a little bit of direction at the end that I think is needed. And But I will say this again. I've said this at the beginning of each class. Is I'm not here to tell you what to do. <laughs> I'm here to tell you what the Bible tells us. And what are the, what are the boundaries the Bible gives us? What are the, what are the commands and the challenges the Bible gives us? What is the vision the Bible gives us? And I think those things can help us each make decisions for ourselves, uh, rather than somebody just telling us, you need to go do this. Um, and I think, I think we're smart enough. And I, and if we have the Holy Spirit, he will guide us in what we figure out we can do. So justice before God, let's go ahead and say a prayer and then we'll jump on in. Father God, thank you so much for uh, the Bible. Thank you for guiding us along. And thank you for your heart for everybody, God. We're so grateful that you care about everybody, that you care about equity, that you care about fairness, that that is even core to your being. And I and I, we pray that we'll be like you and that we'll know when to speak up, we'll know when to shut up, when to speak up, when to to when to stand up, when to sit down, when to kneel, when to do whatever we need to do, God, that you'll guide us along. And uh, Father, please bless our study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, okay, so social justice. I'm going to bring up the, the I'm going to go kind of back to the beginning here. The, what's the Oxford Dictionary? I ran into this, and I like this this um, from a reputable uh, dictionary. It says, define social justice as justice in terms of the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society but vaguely defines justice as the quality of being fair and reasonable. I think that's a great definition of social justice. Um, it's the distribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society and the quality of being fair and reasonable. So what, what is fair? What is right? You know, and that's, that's what basic justice is about. And particularly social justice is in regard to people, society how we treat people, what happens with people. It, it originated, the idea of social justice originated with the Jesuit priest, Luigi Taparelli de, Celi, de Seglio, who's the one who coined the term in the, in the 1840s and based the concept on the teachings of Thomas Aquinas. 
Uh, Taparelli used the term to refer to the ordinary and traditional conception of justice applied to the constitutional arrangements of society. At that time, Taparelli's concept was was actually from a conservative perspective. What is how should society be regulated? How do we distribute things in society? And and it, it was a very conservative. Now I will say this that. As this idea has evolved and this concept has evolved, um, it, it, uh, is taken on different forms. Um, you know, as a Jesuit priest, of course, if you know anything about Jesuits, they're kind of the radical wing of the Catholic Church that was all about helping the poor, all about taking care of the masses. And so that's where they came from. But it was a very conservative perspective. It's actually evolved through through the decades and then took on a whole new turn in the 1960s and particularly in the 1970s. And that's where it kind of became more associated with leftists, uh, socialists, communists. And that's basically why there's always been a mistrust from the Christian side. Is that, you know, is that a bunch of commies trying to infiltrate the church or what is it? And and you know there's there's obviously similarities in both if you know anything about leftist uh philosophy or politics it's leftist is is really oriented towards taking care of people equality things like that at least in its ideals you know if not necessarily in its practice but but in its ideas so you know in a in a in supposedly in a socialist communist society everybody's taken care of there are no extreme poor Everybody gets an education. Everybody gets equal access to medical help and things like that. Um, but, and, and you can see the similarities to Christianity. If you look at Acts 2 and Acts 3 and Acts 4 of the early church, there was no needy among them. Everybody took care of each other. Now, probably one of the biggest differences is in a leftist society, the government makes all that happen. In the church, the people make that happen, not a government. And, and, and it's, it's not the leadership's responsibility per se. It's the people's responsibility. Whereas in a government, in a, in, in a communism or socialism, the government makes it happen and therefore has the power to do it and therefore becomes very powerful. And that scares many of us. So, but it took that turn in the sixties and seventies and got mixed in with liberation theology, which is another branch of Christianity that was very radically devoted to helping the poor and needy and, uh, really took off in, particularly in Latin America, where, uh, there was a lot of bad things happening to poor people. Poor people were losing everything and being abused. And many poor people in many Latin countries were not much better off than slaves. In fact, they were pretty much owned by the companies that they worked for. The companies owned everything they had. The closest thing that we would have to that would be the way some of the coal miners were abused uh, in 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 the last century, in the early days of coal mining, when their rent, the house was owned by the coal mining company, their groceries were, they were indebted to the coal mining company. Everything they did, they couldn't leave. They were in such debt to the people they worked for. So that was kind of, it's kind of a serfdom, much like, like we see in Russia, um, but anyway, so the social gospel movement um, took took that kind of a left turn there, and and, and we have to be really careful of that. 
And that's why sometimes you'll get pushback. And from some Christians, even they get really worried when you start saying social, when you start saying social justice, because it sounds a lot like the social gospel movement. Um, and here's where it really went wrong is that, that basically over time as progressive social causes became more foundational, the social gospel movement, the good of justice and equality became the main goal and not spiritual needs, not evangelism. And, and so the error was that physical needs outweighed spiritual needs. And that was what, what I would say where God would totally disagree with the social gospel movement is that physical needs never outweigh spiritual needs. A perfect example of that is the parable of the paralytic, where the guys lower the paralytic through the roof and Jesus looks at him. And the obvious thing to do is to say, you're healed, get up and take your mat. And he didn't. He looked at him and said, what? He said, your sins are forgiven making a very clear point to everybody that his greatest need was not his physical need. His greatest need was his spiritual need. Now, what has happened over the years is much of Christianity swung in the other extreme. We're pretty much ignoring the physical need. And you know, we all know this. This is what happens out in society. There's, there's a pendulum. We go from one extreme to another extreme. And so where many churches have been is, on the other extreme, and that is that that we're all about the spiritual, we're not about the physical. And that's for other people to take care of. And that's for other people to do. Let let the Red Cross, let the Salvation Army, let the which is ironic because all of those organizations started as Christian organizations. And some of them still are, you know, but but they were started by the example of Jesus. But now they're considered kind of the secular. They're considered the secular side of things, so the churches don't have to deal with it because we got those guys to deal with it. The problem is, that's not the way Jesus was. He did help people with physical needs. He did heal the sick. He did heal the blind and the and the and the deaf and and the lame. So you can't say that that's Jesus' ministry. Jesus spent a lot of time dealing with all needs. And 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 what what stands out to me clearly is that that is the nature of love. You know, if you love somebody, you don't separate and partition their needs. If they have a need, you meet it. If you love them, right? The best example are parents with their children. If their child is sick and those parents are Christians, they don't say, well, you just need to go pray and hopefully you'll get better. You know, or if they're hungry, they don't say, well, why don't you spend another hour in prayer and your hunger will go away. We meet the need. If they're hungry, we feed them. Even though we still understand the most important need is the spiritual need. So we don't, we, we, the warning is don't go down the social gospel movement. That's, that's a mistake. Honestly, what I would call that is a lot of good hearted people who are not spiritual. <laughs> Basically, they take off down the social gospel movement road and they get all cut up in meeting nothing but the physical needs not the spiritual needs. Now, a spiritual person is going to want to meet those needs, but they're going to want to do it spiritually. And there's there's some rules to spirituality that kind of help us along the way. Here's the rules. So we know in 1 Timothy 4, 16, it says, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save yourself and your hearers, right? We know that. That's a, that's a foundational scripture for our church. 
um, that we always should watch our doctrine, what we believe in our life, how we practice it, right? So here's the classic, and these are the classics. How do you know if something is okay to do? Well, the short answer is the Bible, but specifically what? When we look in the Bible, we should see one of three things or, or all three things. Number one, a command. Is there a command for us to do this? If there's a command for us to do it, that settles it. There's no argument there. <laughs> then that's just what we do. Is there an example? Sometimes there's not a command, but there's an example, right? And, and so, um, if there's a clear example, then that's what we follow. We follow the example because we're disciples. We do, you know, we follow Jesus. We follow Paul as he follows Jesus. We follow the apostles as they follow Jesus. And then the last one is inference. It means that it's something that can be inferred that, that doesn't necessarily address it, right? Um, uh, can, can Christians do drugs? Can Christians do cocaine? The Bible doesn't say anything about cocaine. Well, it wasn't around back then. But if the Bible says not to get drunk and not to let anything dominate you or master you, that cocaine would definitely fall in that category, right? So, so we can safely say God doesn't want us to do cocaine, even though there's not a scripture in there. Nowhere is there a command says that thou shalt not do cocaine, but we, we can, we can infer that from the examples that we have. Those are, those little, that little set of rules helps us along so that makes sure that we stay within the path. Remember I, last class I talked about the, the guardrails, right? There's always scriptures that keep us from going too far to the left or too far to the right. And what's that middle road? Well, there should be a command, an example, or an inference, right? Something that infers we can or cannot do this. Um, and, and each one is a little less stringent than the other one. The command, no doubt about it. Could God command it? That settles it. I don't have to agree. There's that bumper sticker says, God said it. I agree. That settles it. No, actually God said it. That settles it. You don't have to agree that the fact that God said it is enough. The example, you know, it's, that's pretty solid, but you know, sometimes we got to ask, okay, is that what he would do now? You know, is that what would be done now? You know, um, and some, so, so we have to be careful with the examples. Generally, we follow them, but we always have to ask the question, what's the context? And am I in the same context? And then the last one, inference, that's the one we really got to be careful, you know, because, uh, yeah, I remember this, this woman came up to me at church one time. She was furious because the brother doing the communion had an earring on. And she was like, how dare you let a man with an earring on? Don't you know that Deuteronomy, whatever says, a man shall not dress like a woman and you let him. Now she's inferring that a guy wearing an earring is a man dressed like a woman, you know? And, and I told her, I said, look, ma'am, believe me, if he would have come to church wearing a dress, I would not have let him go up on stage and do communion. But I don't think that wearing an earring means you're dressed like a woman. And she says, well, that's what the Bible says. Da, 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 da. And you can only do, I only do what the Bible says to do. And, and I, you know, so I said, well, ma'am, you're wearing sneakers. Does anywhere show me a scripture? The Bible says that you should wear sneakers or that you're allowed to wear sneakers or that Jesus wore sneakers. Show me an example. Show me anything that, about sneakers. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. So for her inference was taken too far. It had to be pulled back to, 
okay, there's, there's things that are reasonable and there's things that are not reasonable. And that's why you're going to have some people think one way and some people think another way. But there better be one of those three or we shouldn't be doing it. Or, or we, or we can do it, but we cannot say that this is part of our Christianity or part of following Jesus. We can only say it's my opinion. It's what I think, but I don't have a reason for it beyond that. So, so, so that's a good guide when we're, especially as we, we tackle the question of as a Christian, what can I do? Can I march? Can I protest? Should I speak up? Should I write letters to my congressman? Should I go out there with a bullhorn and scream at people? You know, what, what should I do? There's people that think they're doing God a favor by driving around with a bullhorn telling everybody they're going to hell. Is that really helpful? You know, is that, if you ran it through this filter, the answer would clearly be no. It's not what Jesus commanded us to do. There's no examples of that. And, and you can't even really infer that. You could infer it, but, but it would be a bad inference. So, so let's get back to the point. So, um, justice, righteousness, mercy. This is what we're talking about. This is the, the, this is social justice. This is what our topic is. Uh, this is one of the best scriptures, Amos 5, 24. If you're going to memorize one, this is a good one to memorize. But let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. This is Amos telling people what the world should be like, what the kingdom of God is. And he's saying, this is what it needs to be for the people of God. That the, the righteousness flows like a river and justice like a never failing stream. Um, last time I talked about the words of the big three, I talked about, uh, about justice and I talked about mercy and I talked about faithfulness or humility, right? When, whichever way you want to go with that truthfulness. Um, well, here's a fourth one that you need to know, and this is righteousness. It's sadika, sadika. Um, it's, it's a TZ. So it's a sadika. And in Greek, there, you can have two consonants together. You can't do that in English, but like we don't say psychology. We say psychology, but in Greek, you'd say psychology. They, they have consonants together. So it's sadika. And it's primarily about being in a right relationship with God. It's a righteousness or a righteous life that results, uh, in, in, it's profoundly social. It's, it's being right with God, being right with each other. Being in the right state. There's nothing between us. There's no wrong between us. There's nothing to be repented of between us. We are in a right state. This is an important scripture. You will actually find righteousness and justice together a lot. Um, the, the, the idea of mishpat, which is justice. Remember, sadika, which is righteousness. It's like, what is fair? What is right? Equals social justice. Very simple formula there to understand it. What is fair and what is right for everyone? That's social justice. Social justice in the Bible. Okay. And that's what we're dealing with, right? Um, it's, it's, it's in those two are tied together more than three dozen times in the Bible because they go together. You know, the, what, 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 what is fair and what is right? That's, it's all anybody wants. And as I've said, I think in every class that, that's pre-installed software because we're made in God's image. You, you, you treat a four-year-old unfairly, they will let you know that's not fair because 
It's in us. It's in our fiber. It's in our, it's in our little brains right from the very beginning. Um, and the Bible talks a lot about it. I mean, there's a lot of great scriptures. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. And you will see love in there a lot. Hesed. You'll see that those, they, they're, they're just like the founding cells of, of, of Christianity in a Christian's life. Um, your righteousness is like the highest mountains. Your justice like the great deep. You, Lord, preserve both people and animals. I know my wife's going to love that one because that was basically saying righteousness and justice means you take care of people and you take care of animals. You do what is right, right? That was Psalm 36. Um, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. You know, that's just, this is the foundations of God's throne. Righteousness and justice. Fairness, being fair to everybody, being respectful, being treating people equally. It's what God is all about. That's basically what he's saying. Uh, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all of the oppressed. You know, God is always thinking of the oppressed. And, and there's a lot of forms of oppression. There's social oppression, racial oppression. There's emotional oppression. There's physical oppression. And those are all oppressions. And, and those are all addressed in the minor prophets where, where we're getting a lot of this. Um, and, and, and those were the problems of the day. Um, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. You see, it's the same ones again. Always together, always together. You cannot separate them. You separate them, you have a weird thing going on. It's it's what is fair, what is right, and what is love. All three together. Um, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's the one we talked about. Amos, Amos 5.24. So, um, as we, as we close out this whole series, you know, the big question that started out with was what can a Christian do to express indignation? If we see something and we think that's not right or that's not fair or that's not love, that's not what should be happening. What do we do and how do we handle that? And I'll just, I'll be really honest, real transparent here. I've wrestled with this for years. And I, I've, I've come to some conclusions lately that I really honestly never came to before, but I finally said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And uh, some of this is what I'm sharing with you now. And some of that I'm not telling you, you have to go to my, my, my personal blog to find out what I specifically think about it, um, which is the way of the pilgrim.com, by the way. But anyways, um, the question, what must a Christian do to stand for righteousness? You know, now I will say this, um, or the other question, what can a Christian do to express indignation? You know, those are, those are, I think, I think those are, that's on a lot of people's hearts and minds right now because of, of, of what's been happening. The, the first and most obvious answer is the classic one. What would Jesus do? Right now, that's a little tricky because social society looks very different today. We don't necessarily recognize all the same things that we would have recognized before, and because we've already been taught Jesus' life through the lens 
of doctrine and spirituality, we don't even necessarily notice when he's dealing with social political issues because we always approach them spiritually. But the fact is, much of what Jesus dealt with was social and political. I mean, when he was dealing with Herod, that was very political. When 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 he was uh, dealing with women in a day where you're not supposed to even talk to women, that was very social. He was he was blasting social norms and social barriers down. When when he held up an Italian soldier as the one that amazed him with great faith, he, he was he was blasting everybody. And, and doing something so extraordinary. We don't even notice it because we're like, what's the big deal? He's Italian. That was a big deal for them. He's a Roman. And the Romans were the stinking oppressors. They were the ones that were oppressing and occupying their country. And here Jesus is holding him up. When he tells the story of good guys and bad guys, and he comes out with the good guys, a Samaritan? Are you kidding me? That was a slap in the face to everybody. Wait, wait, wait. The Samaritan couldn't be the good guy. Everybody knows Samaritans are bad guys. No, not in Jesus' stories. He made the Samaritan the good guy. Those were social statements as much as they are spiritual statements. Those are things that challenged, challenged bigotry, racism, gender inequality, gender inequality. He's challenging all that stuff. And, and, we don't notice it because we're looking back 2,000 years. But, oh, let me tell you, that I mean, it rocked people's worlds. He was making huge statements that definitely crossed over into the social political world. You think about what Jesus did. He questioned bad systems. Now, now again, I'm just telling you, I'm not telling you to go do this. I don't want you to go get in trouble and then your evangelist gets mad at you and say, well, Robert said we could do this. No, I'm telling you what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He questioned bad systems and norms. Oh man, he spoke out against how things were being run. You know, how things were happening. He said, you go tell that fox that I'm going to go do this. this Whoa, 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 Jesus, we're not supposed to be political. Be careful there. He was careful. But he still told, he still called Herod a fox. And I heard it, I even heard a class the other day where somebody said, well, that was a spiritual statement about Herod's spiritual condition. He was a spiritual leader. That's a bunch of garbage. Herod was not a spiritual leader. Not at all. Not even remotely. He was a political leader. Everybody hated him. And and Jesus slammed him. What do you do with that? I don't know, but I know Jesus did it. So he challenged social wrongs. You know, he talked about, you know, don't just invite the rich person that can invite you back. Invite the poor person that can't have you over for dinner with them. I mean, those were social wrongs. He touched lepers. That was wrong. Lepers were treated wrongly. He challenged that. He he exposed social wrongs. He pointed out what was wrong. I mean, he man, when he came into the temple, you're going to tell me. I, I heard somebody say the other day, yeah, but Jesus was completely nonviolent. I don't know what you put the category of flipping tables and making a whip. I don't think a whip is a peace statement. I think you know, I'm not. Again, I'm not advocating violence. I'm certainly not advocating looting. But what I am saying is I think sometimes we put Jesus in that painting, you know, the soft one with the little lamb on his shoulder and almost like getting angry is a sin. No, there was times Jesus was very angry. 
Okay, I'll use this, the biblical or the spiritual word is he was indignant. Yeah, he was indignant. Indignant enough to flip tables and make a whip. And he'd say, well, that was a spiritual statement. That's not what he said. He said, you have made the house of God a den of robbers. They were robbing the people. That's not a spiritual sin. That's a physical sin. Who was losing? Poor people were losing. Poor people couldn't make sacrifices to God because these people were ripping them off. That's an economic issue. And it's wrong. And he addressed it directly. So, okay, is it also spiritual? Yeah, it's also spiritual about how you approach God and what you do, but it's also economic. So I think we have to be careful sometimes because we we see everything through one set lens and we don't realize that, no, it also makes a political statement. It also makes a an economic statement. Um, he spoke to the leaders. I mean, he challenged the leaders. He spoke to them. He he spoke publicly about them, you know? So you can't say that Jesus didn't do anything to rock the boat. I mean, he didn't get crucified because he was a nice guy. Um, he made right what he could. He healed people when he could. He fed people when he could. He did what was right. Did he feed everybody? No. Did he heal everybody in the planet? No. Did he eliminate world poverty? No, no. But he did what was in front of him, what he could do. He did. He did. That's a great example for us. You know, I think sometimes we get overwhelmed. Well, if I can't change the world, then I'm just not going to try it all. I can't do this. No, do what you can. And that's good enough. That's plenty good enough. Um, he changed what he could. He loved the unloved. Uh, he advocated for the poor and the oppressed. You know, he talked about not showing favoritism. He talked about you know, about the greatest being the servant. I mean, he just flipped the whole thing upside down. He just took society, just flipped it upside down and said, this is what it's supposed to be like. Okay. So you say, well, aren't those all spiritual principles? They are, but they're also social. They have a huge social impact, even a political impact. Now, I don't think Jesus, I think Jesus avoided politics. He could have easily been drugged into it. You know, they tried to make him king and he'd sneak away and he'd disappear disappear on them. He'd do the Jedi mind trick. Nobody would even know what happened to him. And and he, I think he avoided politics, but he wasn't afraid to uh, deal with the issues. And I think that's an important distinction. Um, issues that are people and people oriented. And yeah, he ties them all into God. What give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And everything he brought back to God. But that's because God is over everything. So so everything does come back to God. But that doesn't mean we, oh, I can't say that's wrong because somebody might think that I'm being political if I say that's wrong. If it's wrong, then you better say it's wrong. You're not only, can you, not are you allowed to say it's wrong, you should say it's wrong. Because we are supposed to speak up for those that have have no voice. We are supposed to defend the cause of the oppressed. We are supposed to help in those in those areas of social needs. So and the bottom line is he taught right from wrong. And and I mean look at all the all the material that Jesus put out there, you know. The Good Samaritan. I mean that what a what a great parable 
about just doing what's right, no matter the racial difference, no matter the ethnicity, no matter, you know, what people think or how society looks at it. You just help people, period. I remember one of the most hurtful things that ever happened to me was the hate mail I got after I talked about helping Muslim refugees. And it's like, what the heck? What happened to our church? And it wasn't it. It was a few people. But but the point being that that Jesus told these stories to help us think bigger, love deeper, and think like God, right? The rich man and Lazarus, you know, about about, yeah, we're all accountable to helping those that ha- that are in need. And just the, the fact if the fact that he didn't realize what was going on and do something is huge. Um, the sheep and the goats that this is what, you know, the scary thing is he doesn't say that that's actually a parable. He actually says, this is what it's going to be like. This is what's going to happen. So yeah, he's going to separate those who helped and those who didn't help, you know, and that's, that's pretty huge. The persistent widow, what was she persistent about? She wanted justice. She wanted justice. You know, the, the woman caught in adultery, just breaking all the social norms. The woman at the well, again, breaking all the social norms. The workers in the vineyard, you know, oh no, everybody's supposed to get this amount. Of it. Nope, everybody gets to get paid and you let God decide what is right and wrong, not you. Um, the Italian soldier with the great faith, you know, I already said that one. The miscellaneous teachings on fairness about about how we treat people and and, you know, the seat of honor and and having people over for dinner and all that kind of stuff that all of that is, is, is social flipping, you know, turning it upside down. Cause what would everybody do normally? They would invite people that they're trying to impress over with hope that they would get invited back to their house. Right. He said, no, invite the guy who can't invite you over, who doesn't have a home, can't feed you, can't do anything for you. That's why pure religion is helping orphans and widows because they can't give you back. They can't give anything back to you. They have nothing to give back to you. So the giving is pure. It's pure. It's just out of your heart and you can't expect anything back. And that's good because that's the way God is. He gives freely. I love, and, and we're going to start wrapping up here. I love, um, John, John, the, 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 uh, John the Baptist. He gave us a, a fantastic picture of the way things are supposed to be, what social justice is. He gave one of the best descriptions. It says, um, he's speaking to the crowds, and this is before Jesus' ministry really takes off. This was in the, in the height of John's ministry. And it says, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't exhort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. And the people were were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I, bapt- I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come 
and the, and the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. You know, um, I love this because John is, is describing what social justice is. It's the haves helping the have-nots. Those that have liberty, those that have freedom, helping those who don't have freedom. Those that have power, helping the powerless. Those that have a voice, helping the voiceless. Those that have food, helping those who have no food. It's, it's that simple. It's that because every single one of us is made in God's image. Every single one of us is valuable enough that Jesus died on the cross for you. Every single one of us. And so social justice is treating everybody like that. It's not right for one person because of the color of their skin to be abused or treated badly. It's not right for a person because of their national origin to have no food or to have no medicine when plenty of food and medicine is in this world. When we have everything, we live in a very unique time in history where the only reason poverty exists is because we allow it to exist. It could easily be eliminated. There's plenty. The only reason that there's so many kinds of suffering is because we're okay with it. We're okay with other people suffering in other places. If we stop being okay with it, it could be eliminated. And everybody would have food, shelter, medicine, education, and a chance at that life that God wants for them to give them hope and a future. That's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is where justice rolls like a stream and righteousness like a mighty river, right? Listen to this, and I'm going to close out with this. This is God's vision of the kingdom of God. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the majesty of our God, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall not, but it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. He's saying everybody will be taken care of. And we'll be happy and we'll be glad. And even the fool, even the fool, he says, will be on the road. And we'll, we'll make sure the fool gets there. I love it. He just takes care of everybody. And the last one, he says, of the greatness of his government, and he's still talking about the kingdom, and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice. Fairness. What's fair? And righteousness. What is right? From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's Isaiah 9-7. God's going to make it happen. God himself will bring about social justice in the end. But in the meanwhile, we are all supposed to be advocates of it. We're all supposed to be a voice. We're all supposed to stand up for each other and defend each other and take care of one another. Who is my brother's keeper? (laughs) And who am I a keeper for? We're all in this together. And that's what God prays for. That's what Jesus' prayer was at the end. And in no other place should that be more evident than the church, where we love each other that deeply and we're that committed to one another. So that concludes our justice study. Um, It's a lot more to share, but this is good. This is a good beginning. God bless you and take care. You've just listened to the Metro LA Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit MetroLARegion.com 